Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Thank you so much for joining us as we open up and listen to God's Word together. Today's message is part one in Pastor DJ Ritchie's series on Elijah. The message is titled God's Provision, and it was given during our Sunday morning worship service on January 3rd, 2020. If you have not yet subscribed, please do. When you do, you will receive a notification each time we post a new message and will always be up to date. We hope this encourages you in your relationship with Christ, and if it does, we would love to connect with you in person sometime. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Father, as Paul told Timothy, even when we are faithless, you are faithful. And so, God, we rest in the faithfulness of God today and that whatever it is that we have gone through, God, we can give testimony to your strength and your power, your grace, your mercy. And so, God, let us remember that with whatever we may face in the coming days and months. And, uh, God, we want your spirit to empower us and to lead us. We want, God, your son to be our focus, uh, Father, and we want your promises to be our strength. And so, God, may we... Be encouraged and challenged with the words of God this morning. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to Matthew 17. We're going to just begin in Matthew 17 and uh, head to the Old Testament. How would you describe a man whose prayers could shut the windows of heaven? How would you describe a man whose prayers could open the windows of heaven after three and a half years of famine? Now, rain or lack of rain, that may not impress you. You might think, well, that's just a coincidence. Okay. How would you describe a man whose prayers can bring fire down from heaven? Whose prayer painted the target and with Better than military precision, that fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice on Mount Carmel. Of course, I'm talking about the man Elijah, a man who you may have guessed, if you know our family, is a great inspiration to me, one of my heroes of the faith. You may have guessed that since we named our son after this great prophet, Elijah. I don't know how you would describe Elijah, But here's how James described Elijah in James chapter 5. Elijah, or Elias, was a man subject to like passions as we are. One translation paraphrases that Elijah was a man just like us. Elijah was a man just like us. And his prayers shut and opened the windows of heaven. Elijah was a man just like us and his prayers brought fire down from heaven How is it that a man with passions and weaknesses just like ours could pray so powerfully? Well, as we're going to see, Lord willing, this month, the power of Elijah's prayers, the testimony of Elijah's life did not depend on the weaknesses of his flesh, but on the strengths of his God. Elijah's name means, my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. We don't know anything about Elijah's parents other than this. 
This is the most important thing. Their God was the God of the Old Testament. Their God was the God of the New Testament. Their God was the great I Am, Yahweh. And they wanted everybody to know in a culture that was saturated with compromise and paganism that they were trusting in God, the one true God, and that their son was dedicated to that life as well. And so when we look at Elijah, really the testimony of his life is the testimony that Yahweh is his God. The reason that James puts forward Elijah as a testimony for us is because of the faith that he had and the faith that he lived out in the one true God. Now, I ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 17 because I want to show you just how significant this man is. Not only in the Bible, but in all of human history. There are only two men in all of human history who can say that they have survived death for not just hundreds of years, but thousands of years. There are only two men who have never died yet. Again, not for hundreds of years, for thousands of years. Enoch and Elijah. Very significant. Elijah is mentioned in the New Testament by name 30 times and is very likely one of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. And here's why I say that. We know that Elijah is coming back. We know that. I don't know for sure. I can't say 100% act with accuracy, with, with 100% dogma, that Elijah is one of the two witnesses of Revelation 11. But I do know that if he's not, then he's a third witness. Because the Old Testament prophecies end with this promise. Malachi chapter 4 says that the day of the Lord will not begin until Elijah returns. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Do you know that even to this day that when uh, many Jewish families, families, and I'm talking about Jewish families who, who do not confess Jesus as their Messiah, they don't recognize him as Messiah. But to this day, many of them, when they, when they observe the pa- Passover Seder, they will set a chair for Elijah at their table. Because whether it's just by tradition or whether it's by belief in the words of, of God, they understand that Elijah is coming back. Now, there are many people who think that that prophecy has already been fulfilled because Gabriel told John the Baptist's parents that John the Baptist would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus himself said that uh, Elijah has come in the form of John the Baptist. But notice what else Jesus said in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, we uh, mentioned this now. It's been almost nine months ago, I think. Maybe it has been a full nine months. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ very likely did not take place on the traditional location, the place that is traditionally believed, but was almost certainly on Mount Hermon, 
which is in the northeast corner of Israel, was, it still is, part of the mountain is, is still under Israeli control. Uh, but back in that day, it would have been in the nation of Israel. And Mount Hermon was where Jesus and his disciples were in the days before the transfiguration. They, they were at the foot of that mountain, and so very likely that was the mountain. And when Jesus went up, very likely Mount Hermon with Peter, James, and John, he transfigured himself. Matthew 17 is one of the places where that is recorded. He showed his glory to the people. We see that in Matthew 17, verse 2. He was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun. His raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, or Elijah. Elias is the Greek pronunciation of Elijah. And they were talking with Jesus. So here all of a sudden is Elijah showing up at one of the most significant points in the ministry of Jesus Christ, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And without going into all that happens after that with Peter and and putting his foot in his mouth, after this takes place, notice uh, verse 8, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only, and they came down from the mountain, and Jesus charged them, saying, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And so his disciples asked him, and, and one of the other gospel writers makes it clear that this is actually the Apostle Peter who's, who's the one verbalizing this. He says, why say the scribes that Elias must come first? Why, why do the prophets say, why do the scribes say that Elijah has to return before Jesus, before you can set up your kingdom, before the day of the Lord can begin? Why do they say this? Now, Peter being a, good Jewish boy would have known the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4. But see, the question that they wrestled with is the same question that we wrestle with today. Do we take prophecy literally or not? When God makes a promise in His Word, do we take that literally? Do we take prophecy, which is really a promise of God, do we take God's promises literally or do we just take them symbolically? Now, this is just a little aside because we're going to, Lord willing, in a few months on on Sunday nights, we're going to do a deep dive into prophecy. And we'll we'll talk more about this when we get into our study on prophecy. But just as a little teaser, those of us who have grown up in the Western culture with the Western mindset, we have been taught, for the most part, we have been taught that the Bible should be taken literally. However, today it's very trendy to say, no, 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 the Bible's not a Western book. The Bible's an Eastern book. You shouldn't take the Bible literally. You should take it symbolically. The Bible's just about stories because Eastern culture just tells things through stories. And so you shouldn't take all that stuff literally. It's not really literal. Now, here's the problem with both of those views. The Bible is not a Western book, but it's also not an Eastern book. It's a Jewish book. And as a Jewish book, it is both literal and symbolic. And one of the reasons that so many Christians get confused when it comes to the issue of prophecy is because they want to look at it as either or. Is it literal or is it symbolic? And the reality is that as Jewish prophecy was given, that it is always literal, but also often symbolic. It is both. It is both Western and Eastern. And we see that here in this prophecy. Notice what Jesus says. Does Elias have to come first? Is that literal? Jesus says yes and no. Jesus says this. 
Elias truly, verse 11, Elias truly shall come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not. You know, in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist was asked, are you Elijah? John the Baptist said, I am not Elijah. Meaning, I am not the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. Elijah, Jesus said, has come in the spirit and power of, John, of Elijah in the, in the form of John the Baptist, but Elijah is still coming back. See, what's, ama- what's so amazing about this man is that his ministry is not yet finished on earth. Elijah is coming back, Jesus said. Yes, he has symbolically come back in the ministry of John the Baptist, but make no mistake, Jesus Christ himself said after his transfiguration, Elias truly shall first come. So as we go back now to 1 Kings chapter 17, and we begin to study the ministry of Elijah, we're talking about a ministry that is not yet finished. A ministry that extends beyond the centuries. Because Elijah has so much to teach us about the nature and character of of God. Now let me remind you as you're turning back to 1 Corinthians 17, a passage of scripture that I like to remind you of whenever we go back into the Old Testament, and that is Romans 15 verse 4, which says, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. God wants you to have hope today. God wants you to have hope for the coming year. And that hope is going to come through the Scriptures. But to really experience that hope, we have to have patience. And we have to go to the Word of God for our comfort. We have to have patience. Because comfort is not always automatic, as we're going to see in the life of Elijah. He, went, he spent a lot of time very uncomfortable. But through the patience and the comfort of God's Word, Elijah had a life of incredible impact that is not yet finished. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. There are some things that God wants us to learn today about himself, about Yahweh, who is Elijah's God, as we study the life of Elijah. And so as we go to 1 Kings chapter 17 today, as we look uh, at the first 16 verses of this chapter There are two things that I want to highlight for you as we think about Elijah and what Elijah has to teach us specifically about God. Because really, the stories of Elijah are not there to tell us how great Elijah is. The stories of of Elijah are there to teach us how to know who God is and what Yahweh is like. And so we're going to talk in these weeks of January what it means to know the God of Elijah. And the two things we want to highlight this morning from 1 Kings 17, God's presence and God's provision. God's presence and God's provision. Let's talk, first of all, about God's presence. To live like Elijah, I need to live in the awareness of God's presence. 1 Kings 17.1, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, who we find in chapter 16 was 
up until this time, the most wicked king who had ever ruled in Israel. A very ungodly, wicked king. And here's what Elijah says to this wicked, wicked ruler. As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand. Elijah said, I'm not real impressed, King Ahab, standing in front of you. Oh, I know you're the king. That's not what impresses me. Because I stand before the God of creation. I stand before the God who made me. I stand before the God who alone deserves to be worshipped. I stand before the God who allowed you to wear that crown and the God who is going to take that crown off of your head. And if I want to live like Elijah, it begins with living in the awareness of God's presence. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9 tells the story of another king, King Asa, who places his faith and trust in an alliance with the king of Syria instead of the God of the Bible. It's amazing as you read the Old Testament that these nations and these places are still in the center of world events, are, are still in the center of what's, of what's going on in the world, what, how the world is being impacted. And here's what the prophet says, here's what God says through his prophet to King Asa after he makes a foolish alliance. The prophet says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him, Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. God is looking for those who will put their trust in him so that he can bless them. And he says, Asa, because you didn't do that, you're not going to have the peace that you sought. You're going to have conflict. You're going to have wars. Proverbs 5.21, the ways of, the man, of man are before the eyes of the Lord. He pondereth all his goings. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. God sees everything. There is nothing hidden before the eyes of God. No word spoken that he does not hear. No act that he does not see. No thought that he does not see. And that can be either terrifying or comforting, depending on the thoughts you choose to think and the life you choose to live. Jesus wants us as a church to be strengthened by his ever presence with us. That's how the Great Commission ends in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Lo, or behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. God wants us to live in the awareness of his presence. So, Here's what that's going to do. Here's the evidence of that. Am I doing that? Am I really aware of God's presence? Here's two evidences of that that we see in the life of Elijah. Number one, no fear of man. The fear of God will dispel the fear of men in my life. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It's why the apostles in Acts chapter 4, after Jesus resurrected, after the Holy Spirit fell on them and they were filled with the Holy Ghost, they were able, in the face of their leaders, their ungodly leaders that were trying to suppress the preaching of the gospel, they, they said to those leaders, 
Acts chapter 4, verse 19, Peter and John specifically answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you, more than unto God, judge ye. And then all of the uh, disciples, are, all of the apostles are gathered in chapter 5, verse 29, where Peter stands up and Peter uh, spoke for the apostles and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, these are the same guys who, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before he died on a cross for your sin and for my sin, hours before he gave himself as the sin atonement for all mankind, just days before he rose from the dead, they were scattered, they were in hiding, they were afraid. But now Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Now the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them and they're saying, we're not, we're not afraid of the kings anymore. We're not afraid of the, of the Sanhedrin. We're not afraid of the Roman soldiers. We're not afraid of your floggings. We're not afraid of the executions that all but John would endure because they had the fear of God. And if I'm living in awareness of his presence, that means that I'm going to demonstrate that. I'm not going to be afraid of people. I'm not going to be afraid of what they think of me. I'm not going to be afraid of if they're putting peer pressure on me. I'm going to be afraid of one. That's the one who created me, but who loved me so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for my sin, rose him from the dead, that I can be forgiven of my sin simply by calling upon him, simply by asking. That's why Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 says, uh, we need to... Be God-pleasers, not men-pleasers. Paul says, do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? If I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. See, Paul said, you can either uh, live to please God and seek to persuade men with the gospel, or you can be a foolish person and seek to please people and then try to get God to change his mind. <laughs> Paul says, what are you doing? How are you living? What are you choosing to, to do with your life? Who are, you, who are you really trying to please and who are you trying to persuade? So the fear of God will dispel the fear of men. So if I truly live in awareness of God's presence, I'm not going to fear men. I'm only going to fear God. And then, of course, if I truly fear God, that's going to be evidenced in the second thing, my obedience. My obedience. Obedience is the evidence of our awareness of God's presence. Obedience. See, there are two, there are two ways that you know if, that you're aware of God's presence. Your obedience, if you're wise, or your defiance, if you're a fool. You can be like Nimrod, who defied God, or you can be wise, and you can submit to God in your obedience. But either way, you are responding to an awareness of God's presence. If you truly are living in awareness of his presence, doesn't mean that you're going to run around terrified that God's going to rain down some kind of, of fire on you because of every little mistake you make. But it means you understand that God's loving parental eye is on you. And he sees. He sees everything. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We just finished the study of Ecclesiastes a few months ago. Let me remind you how Ecclesiastes ends. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, 
whether it be good or whether it be evil. So if I truly am living in awareness of God's presence, I'll be obedient. Obedience is the evidence of my awareness of God's presence in my life. So to live like Elijah, I need to live in the awareness of God's presence. King Ahab, not real impressed with that crown on your head. I'm standing right now before the Lord my God. And before whom I stand, the Lord God of Israel, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Now, I said there's two things that we want to highlight today about God. Number one, his presence. The second thing we see beginning in verse 2, and that's God's provision. God's provision. And so if I'm going to live like Elijah, the second thing that I'm going to need to do as I prepare to unpack these verses for you, I need to do this. I need to place my faith in the Lord as the only and all-sufficient provider. I have to place my faith in Jesus Christ as the only and the all-sufficient provider for every need that I have. He's my provider, and He is my sole protector. We see that here demonstrated in the life of Elijah. Now let's read these verses together, then we'll walk back through them. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 2, The word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence. Turn thee eastward, hide thyself by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan, and it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. Now let's stop there for a moment, I don't want to read the whole chapter right away. God is very clearly where Elijah has placed his faith for his provision, for his every need, and his protection from the wrath of King Ahab. Psalm 18, verse 2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler, the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. I love Isaiah chapter 54, uh, this is a good excuse to go back there. Isaiah 54, 16. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the waster to destroy. But verse 17 says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. If you are a servant of the Lord, this isn't just a promise that was for the nation of Israel. This is a promise for those who are truly servants of God. If you are a servant of God, if you're living as a servant of God, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every weapon that will rise up against you, and there will be weapons against you, and there will be conflict, and there will be attacks, but they will not prosper if your hope is placed in the Lord as your all-sufficient provider and your all-sufficient protector it's why jesus said that we need to seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and if we do that then all these things will be added unto us we won't have to worry about all the things we waste time worrying about if jesus christ is our hope our shield our strong tower our provider and our protector 
Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. In Philippians 4, 19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So, as we go through these next few verses together, I want to show you some things about the provision of God. It's one thing to say God is my protector and provider, but what does that look like? What does that mean? So, I want us to look at these verses as sort of a user's manual. Now, guys, if you're like me, I I don't look at the directions until I have to, and sometimes not even then. Sometimes I don't even know where I put the directions, right? But uh, but as I've gotten older, I've learned to to go to the directions faster because I get so frustrated, and then Gigi gets frustrated, then I'm frustrated, and I really don't have to be frustrated if I just take the time, and, and, and most of the time, she knows how to do it better than I do anyways. How much grief could I save myself, but... I'm still learning. I'm still, I'm still a work in progress, too. But I want you to see this, the, this passage of Scripture as a user's guide to God's provision. Here's how God's provision works. It doesn't work sometimes the way that we think it does. It doesn't always work the way that we want it to work. So when we say that God's our provider, what does that look like? What does that mean? Does that mean that if I pray enough and give enough that I, everything is going to go right for me, that I'm going to get all that I want? Well, let's find out. Verses 2 through 7, we see Elijah is sent into hiding to live by a brook. Now, I know some of you guys, that's like a dream vacation for you, right? Live out by the brook, hunting and fishing all day long. Oh, what a life that would be. But I don't think that Elijah was an outdoor guy. I don't think that he was the hunter or fisher that some of you guys are. And the reason I say that is because God doesn't let him rely on his own hunting and fishing. God says, I, I, I know you don't know how to take care of yourself, Elijah, so let me get the food to you. <laughs> let me make sure that you get what you need. I'm not going to let you rely on your own skills here. I'm going to feed you. But notice this. This is the first thing I want you to see about God's provision, what it sometimes, oftentimes looks like. Number one, God's provision may be humbling and uncomfortable. God's provision may be humbling and uncomfortable. God's provision isn't always a comfortable home, a new car, the nicest clothes, a a job where I enjoy every minute of every day. God's provisions oftentimes were given throughout the scriptures and are given throughout our lives to bring us to a point of recognizing that we need him, that we're dependent on him, that that we're humbled. This is a humbling thing for him. Here he is, a prophet. Here he is. Let me just share this with you as somebody who's called to preach. The seasons in my life where I haven't been able to preach have not been exciting seasons for me. The seasons where, where God has said, no, I'm not going to put you in a pulpit right now. I'm not going to put you in a pastoral ministry right now. Those have been very frustrating seasons because when you're wired to do something, when you're created to do something, you want to do it. And Elijah is a prophet of God, and God's placing him in a place where he can't prophesy any, to anybody. All he can do is talk to the birds, the ravens. Who likes the ravens? 
spoken as a Steeler fan. God has humbled him. He's put him in a place where he's uncomfortable, but he's still providing for him. Don't think if you're uncomfortable where you're at that God isn't in control anymore. Don't think if you're uncomfortable in your job or, or in a situation in your life that, that God is, has abandoned you. Oftentimes, we see this throughout. I'm not going to walk through the uh, faith chapter of the Bible again, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we preached through that a, a few months ago now. Uh, back in the summer, I guess it was, a little longer than a few months. But you can walk through Hebrews chapter 11 yourself, and you can see all the people, the men and women of faith, and all the, the people who God highlights because of their faith in Him, and how many times they were made uncomfortable. And they had to make sacrifices. They had to struggle. It was a, it was a, a humbling experience. God's provision may be humbling and uncomfortable. Number two, we see in this passage, God's provision may come from unexpected places. I mean, ravens are not, generally speak, they're, they're not like uh, you know, carrier pigeons that are used to like bringing people things, right? They're not swallows that you can just uh, tie a coconut to and it'll be a laden or unladen swallow. Not, no other Monty Python fans here, I see. Okay, never mind. I'll just keep, I'll just keep going. Uh, God's provision may come from unexpected places. He's using birds here that are, that are uh, carrion birds. He's using scavenger birds here, and he's using them in a way to bless Elijah. We've seen just recently how God worked in unexpected ways, bringing his Messiah to the world through a poor Jewish girl to be raised by a poor craftsman in Nazareth, a Nazarene here in Nazareth, this poor community. And he's born in this unlikely place and he's laid in a manger at his birth. In the middle of nowhere, little community Bethlehem, God works in unexpected ways. And there are times when I can look back on my life and I can see, you know, the person I didn't expect a blessing to come from or a word of encouragement to come from. Things that God did unexpectedly. God's provision comes in unexpected ways from unexpected places. Now, let's look at what happens next. There's some other things that I want to show you this morning about God's provision Verse 7, it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up. It dried up because there was no rain in the land. Why was there no rain in the land? Because Elijah was praying that there would be no rain in the land. God was answering his prayer, but in answering his prayer, his life was getting more and more difficult. I want to show you something about God's provision here. God's provision is eternal, but his methods of provision are not. God's provision is eternal. God is eternally our provider, but his methods of provision are not. God is going to allow some brooks in your life to dry up. Anybody able to give testimony to that? We had some brooks dry up this past year. God will allow your brooks to dry up so that you're depending on Him for your provision and not on the brook. Does 
Elijah was getting a little too comfortable. Started out uncomfortable, but Elijah, maybe he thought, you know what, this is a pretty nice little place here. I've got a pretty nice little hut that I've built for myself. I've got a pretty nice little layout here. Maybe it isn't so bad that I'm not always getting bothered by people. The brook starts to get thinner and thinner and thinner and weaker and weaker, and all of a sudden, the water is gone. You can live without food longer than you can live without something to drink. So now we are in crisis mode, and the word of the Lord came again unto him, saying, Arise, verse 9, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Sidon, or Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the woman was there gathering of sticks, and he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And here's what the woman says. Verse 12, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I might go in and dress it for me and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not. Go and do as thou hast said, but make me therefore a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and afterward make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail, until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. Now, I've never been that poor. I've been I've been poor. Uh, I've had twelve, fourteen dollars in my bank account, taking a job that I did not want to take because otherwise I wasn't going to be able to pay my bills the next month, and you know take it take a job out of desperation. So I I, I understand having twelve bucks to your name. I, I've been poor, but I haven't been this poor. I haven't been going to die poor. All of her resources expended before God showed up. Again, please don't think because the method of provision has closed, the door has closed on that job, or the method of of God providing for you in that way has, has ended, that God has disappeared. God has something else in store, and God is going to do a miracle in her life. And I've seen God do some great and mighty things in my life as well. To show His power, to show His grace, to show His provision. And so God does a miracle here. He allows her to have miracle supply, but not forever. Because again, God doesn't want us to get enamored with the with the method of his provision he wants us to remember that he's the provider and our provision comes from him god's provision is eternal his methods of provision are not now there's another thing that you may have missed here because we didn't read chapter 16 but it's another interesting note about god's provision god's provision often comes to us it's often found in enemy territory We've talked about unlikely places. The side of a brook uh, in the middle of nowhere is an unlikely place for the prophet to be sent to a widow to live in her upstairs 
not living in the house with her, but living in, upstairs in the, in the apartment attached to the house. That's an unlikely place. But notice where this woman is. She is in Sidon. Jump back in chapter 16, look at verse 31. Speaking about King Ahab, it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him, for Ahab, to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of the bat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Where is God sending Elijah? He's sending him to Jezebel's hometown. He's sending Elijah to hide in the very last place that Ahab and Jezebel would think that he would ever be. The place where Jezebel herself had come from. The land of his enemy. And we're going to find in the coming weeks that Jezebel was an even greater enemy than King Ahab. Living in enemy territory, that's where God provided for Elijah. And that, you need to know that because guess what? You live in enemy territory. I love this country. I, I, I love this country. I, I absolutely reject this notion that patriotism is idolatry. I reject that. That is foolishness. But I have a higher citizenship, an eternal citizenship. My citizenship in this country is, is a temporary thing. My citizenship is in heaven. My eternal citizenship is with Jesus Christ. Wherever he is, that's where I'm going to live forever. This world, Jesus said, is enemy territory. We're not here to be comfortable. We're here to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 10, I send you out as sheep among the wolves. So you better be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You're my sheep, so you better be harmless as doves. But I'm sending you among the wolves. You better be wise as serpents. And, and sadly, a lot of Christians have those two things mixed up. They're wise as doves and harmless as serpents. And we need to, we need to get it back to where Jesus commanded it to be. Jesus, remember, told us that great, incredible promise in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my called out assembly and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Ephesians 6, 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. We also, like Elijah, live in enemy territory. Spiritually, we live in the kingdom of darkness. Satan is the prince of this world, the god of this age. Don't be shocked when you see the things that shock us on TV. I get shocked too. I think, how can that stand? How can that? And then I have to remind myself, Satan's the god of this age. Satan's the prince of this world. The glory and power of the nations belong to Satan for now. Luke chapter 4. We live in enemy territory, but God will provide for you even in enemy territory. God will provide for you wherever you find yourself. Whatever you find rallied against you, no weapon formed against you will prosper if you are a servant of the Lord. Even in enemy territory, God will provide. Here's the next thing I want you to see from the now we're going to start to shift from Elijah to the woman that is impacted by Elijah's life and ministry, this widow. She's lost so much already. She's lost, and in this culture, losing your husband, becoming a widow was 
tremendously, tremendously terrifying because you didn't have the freedoms and the rights and the ability to work and provide for yourself like we have in this culture, thankfully. This one woman was in a place of desperation. But notice that God's provision often begins with what we already have. This woman's provision began with what God had already given to her. It was, wasn't much, it was running out. But God started with what she had. We see this time and time again throughout the Bible. We see it, for example, in Exodus, when God calls Moses. He's going to call this shepherd out in the middle of nowhere who's a fugitive from Egypt. He's going to send him back to Egypt, back to Pharaoh. And Moses is, is arguing with God. He's fighting about this calling. And God, I, I can't do this. I, you know, I, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not, I'm, I don't like to be in front of people. And I don't want to go. And one of the things that God says to him, he asks him a question. He says, what is in your hand? Moses, I'm going to use what is already in your hand. And I'm going to use it in a new way. So what is in your hand today? What are the resources that you have today? God's provision often begins with what he has already given to us. We see that in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, a young boy, he's got five barley loaves, two small fish. And the disciples say, what's that? The resources are so small. The strength is so small. The symbol is so small. And God says, I'm going to use what you have. And I'm going to bless it. I'm going to multiply it. I'm going to use it in a new powerful way. Moses, you're going to become a shepherd of people. Disciples, I'm going to take those five loaves and two fish. I'm going to feed thousands and thousands of people. We know there was many more than 5,000 there. 5,000 was only the number of men who were there. Didn't count the women and children. Some, some estimate as many as 15 or 20,000 people were there fed by those fish and 12 baskets left over, one for each of the apostles to carry around. That's how God blesses. That's how God provides. So I don't know what's in your hand today. I don't know what, what God has given you already that God is going to use to provide for you. It may be a skill that you have. It, I, I don't know. Give it to God. Give the staff to God. Give the oil to God. Give the loaves and the fish to God. And watch Him multiply and bless it. God's provision often begins with what we already have. And this brings us, though, to number six. See, for God to bless what you already have, you have to give what you have. And so we see in this chapter that God's provision often requires sacrificial obedience to be experienced. What if Elijah said, I don't want to go to Sidon. That's where Jezebel's from. I don't want to go there. What if the widow had said, I don't, I don't want to make food for this prophet. I'm worried about my own kid. What would have happened? To, well, we wouldn't have their stories. <laughs> if we did, they would be cautionary tales, not uh, roadmaps of faith. But they had to sacrifice and be obedient in their sacrifice for God's provision to be 
experienced in their life. Proverbs 19.17, He hath pity upon the poor. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. Luke 6.38, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. This does not mean that if you give me $100, God's going to give you $1,000. Like a lot of preachers say, plant your seed into my ministry and God's going to give you tenfold back. It doesn't mean that. It means that God will bless you when you give, when you give with the right attitude, when you give cheerfully, when you give the right motive. We're not giving to get. But oftentimes the blessing, listen, I don't want all my blessings here. God has already blessed me infinitely beyond what I deserve in this life. But I don't want all my blessings here. I don't want all my blessings here. I want my blessings there. Where, where I'm not going to lose them. Where they're not going to fade away. Where they're not going to break. Be stolen. God's provisions require sacrificial obedience. What you sow, you shall reap, Paul said in Galatians 6. So am I sowing sacrificially to the Lord? I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your energy. Are you sacrificing to the Lord? Are you sacrificing obediently to the Lord? If not, this is the year to make that commitment and watch how God blesses and provides. Here's the last thing I want you to see from this chapter and this encounter as God sends Elijah to this widow We'll look at this again next week. We're going to see this woman is incredibly blessed. We're going to see Elijah is blessed. Here's what I want you to understand. God's provision is given to be shared. God's provision is given to us to be shared with others. First Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You may want to turn there as we close. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be God, verse 3, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ, whether it be uh, whether we be afflicted, verse 6, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. This is what sharing the gospel of Jesus is all about. If I've been forgiven of my sin, if, if, I've, if I've come to a point in, in time when I recognize that I'm a sinner who is standing guilty before an, uh, an almighty, all-powerful, all-holy God, and I'm under condemnation, and I deserve eternal damnation in, in, in a place of separation, in a place of torment called hell because of my sin, my rebellion of God. But I also recognize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come and paid for my sin, and He he's took, took my place. He died. He shed His blood, died for my sin. He rose again. He's victorious over sin, over death, over the grave. He offers me that forgiveness, and I by faith, receive the forgiveness that is so graciously, so freely offered. And I am born again. I'm given the Holy Spirit of God. I've made a child of God. I've been given an infinite eternal blessing. Why do I want to keep that to myself? 
Why, why, do I, why don't I want to share that? Because I'm afraid somebody's going to be offended if I talk to them about sin? Because I'm afraid that somebody will unfriend me? Because I'm afraid people will make fun of me? God's comfort, God's provision is given to us so that we share it, not that we hoard it. I know some of y'all have hoarded some toilet paper this year. I know some of y'all have. If there is a shortage, if there is a shortage, I hope you have enough that you can share with those who didn't think ahead and didn't plan ahead or whatever it is you've got stored in your bunker at the house or behind the shed or wherever you, wherever you keep it. I hope that you have enough to share in times of crisis. God's provisions are given to us to be shared with others. And the greatest provision of all is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. We're here. That's why God left us here after he saved us, so that we could be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We have been reconciled with God, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, so we now have the ministry of reconciliation. Let's share the blessing. Let's share the blessing this year with those who don't know Christ, who haven't received Jesus Christ. Let's share all of the blessings that we've been given. Spiritual, financial, emotional. Let's share with each other, with those who are, need, who are needy, who have needs. Let's spend time this year for those who are running out of time. Let's spend our energy with those who have reached the end of themselves. God provided for this woman that she could be a blessing to Elijah, and we're going to see how God pays her back next week. God has blessed Elijah so that he can bless her. Blessed her that she can bless him. It's a picture for us of how God wants us all to live. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is eternally present in our lives. God, you are always working. And God, one of the ways that you're working is by providing for our every need. You, you supply all of our needs, God, according to your riches and glory. But God, many times we miss your provisions because we don't come to you for those provisions. We try to trust in our own intellect, our own skills. Father, may we see you as our all-sufficient provider our all-sufficient protector. But God, as you bless us, and however way you bless us this year, God, may we be willing to share those blessings with each other, that Jesus Christ might be glorified in all things. We love you, we thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that wraps up today's message. We hope this has made an impact on your life and encourages you to follow and reflect Jesus daily. If it has, please give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you listen on and share it with a friend so others might be encouraged as well. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30, Sunday nights at 7 o'clock, Wednesday nights at 6.45, or give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love to hear from you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.